The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. Isaiah chapter 56, if you have your Bibles. Isaiah chapter 56, as we continue our study um, through this powerful book in the Old Testament. I have found preaching through it, I, I have taught through it, and of course studied through it in seminary, but I've never... I've never taught like I am this evening through it, trying to stick as verse, uh, to verse by verse as much as possible, but, but summarizing sometimes chapters that, that are a bit repetitious together as we have done. Uh, but I have found it encouraging um, to my heart and soul to be reminded of God's sovereignty over the life of Israel through all that they were going through. He was working to draw them back unto himself. Even in his judgment upon them, he was being merciful unto them to rid them of the idols they turned to, this whole Babylonian captivity that they got brought into. All of this occurred by God not being up in heaven going, oh my goodness, I can't stop this, but by God orchestrating it all for his eternal glory, for their eternal good. And that parallels right into Romans 8.28, even all things work together for the good of those that love God and are the called according to his purposes, that we serve a God uh, who works in our lives and everything, the good, the bad, the indifferent, everything has a purpose. Everything is working um, under His control. He's a God that we can trust, a God that we are called to worship this evening. Before we dive into Isaiah 56, I want to read Psalm 117, verses 1 and 2 to you. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. So in the midst of Everything in the Old Testament, for the most part, being about the calling of Abraham and the descendants of Abraham, who were ethnic Jews, who were the Hebrew people, the covenant people of God. Psalm 117, the psalmist writes, Praise the Lord, not Israel, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, everybody else, all the other nations of the earth that aren't Hebrew, that aren't the descendants of Abraham. Laud him, all you peoples, for his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Tonight's study is going to be, I don't want to say, it's not unorganized, but it's a little bit, it's big picture. I'll word it that way. Tonight's study is going to be more bigger picture, and then at the end, narrowing down to this passage to, I would argue, rightly understand it in light of the bigger teaching of Scripture, because if we take this passage in isolation, we could come up with some false assumptions about how people are saved and were saved and, and even what God is working in this invitation or even prophecy promise about Gentiles coming into the house of the Lord, about those that weren't Israel becoming the, the people of God. The main point that I want you to see written over all of this tonight is to realize, and you'll see it clearly as we read this passage we're about to read, and as we just read Psalm 117, verses 1 and 2, to realize tonight that God is a God of all people everywhere. Even in the Old Testament, even when He was working as He did so particularly through Israel, He was a God who is the God of all people everywhere, desiring that all the nations come to a right knowledge of who He is, even a repentance and a belief upon Him. That God's plan from the very beginning has been for the nations to be gathered eternally in that new heaven and new earth to worship 
and glorify Him rightly as the Creator of all people everywhere, not merely the Creator of, of the people of Israel ethnically. God is the God of all people everywhere and desires all the nations of the earth to repent and to believe upon Him. Isaiah 56, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the Son of Man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenants, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place And a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name. They shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him. And to love the name of the Lord to be his servants. Everyone who keeps him, uh, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to me. Isaiah writing the word of God. God speaking, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now that sounds familiar because you know it as the words of Jesus. And you're probably more familiar with when he entered into the temple there right after the triumphal entry and he finds the, the, um, those in charge selling and making profit off of the sacrifices, exchanging the funds in a way that was, was a, a money-making racket. And he quotes this. He says, it's written, as it is written, the Lord's house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of, uh, of robbers, of thieves. Uh, you're in it to rob people of their money. And he quotes Isaiah saying, no, the Lord's house was meant to be a house of prayer for the nations. Now, now that is a a striking comment, a shocking comment to an ethnic Israelite who would view the temple as only for Israel, as not for the Gentiles, not for the nations to come worship. It's meant only for Israel. They would definitely believe the Pharisees who were gathered there and even the people under the teaching of the Pharisees and the the court of the Gentiles, that they could Gentiles could not come beyond on the outside of the temple. It was a shocking statement that Jesus made, quoting from Isaiah to this group of people who, though they were in the place God says to worship, they had turned it into a means of making financial gain and stealing from the people who were truly there to worship. I want to give you a little bit of a broader, what I would call a theological grid work to 
rightly understand this passage. And it's not that I'm forcing this on the passage. I hope you come to see that really this helps us rightly fit this passage in, in our understanding of when it was written, to whom it was written, what it is talking about in Christ, and maybe even ultimately talking about in an end times millennial kingdom that is to come. So I don't know how far we'll get into that in the time allotted, but I've got a couple of questions that I want to answer as we, we think about this passage this evening. The first of which is how, how were people saved in the Old Testament? How were people saved in the Old Covenant? Under the Old Covenant of God, under the law of Moses? What was the means of their salvation? We, we often can, can think, well, they were under the law, they were saved by the works of the law. That if a person was devout and working hard enough to abide by the teachings of the law, then that meant they were a saint. That meant they were saved. That is a wrong uh, misconception of how a person was truly saved in the Old Testament. You say, how do you know that? Well, Paul made it pretty clear in Romans chapter 4 that people have always been saved from the very beginning of the fall all the way through to where we are now the same way. And an Old Testament believer was not saved differently than you and I are on the here and now. They've always been saved, every sinful human being, by the grace of God through faith. By God's grace, His unmerited favor, because none are worthy, none can achieve the sinless perfection that God demands. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so it's a gracious, merciful act of God that He would forgive any sinner, then or now, It's always by grace, and it's always been by faith that never has one been justified by their works. Moses was justified by his works. We're going to get to hear him brag in heaven someday about how he deserves to be there. If David was saved by his works, all we've got to do is look at him and go, weren't you the rascal that did that adultery thing with Bathsheba and killed her husband? Well, what do you mean you're bragging about earning your, your salvation by the keeping of the law? No man has ever been justified by the law. No man has ever been justified by his works. It's always been by faith. And you say, well, goodness, did they understand the totality of who Jesus would be and what he would accomplish on the cross at Calvary, dying for their sins? No. No, they did not. What did they understand? They understood what God had revealed to them. They understood what God in His revelation to them at the time was clearly manifested to them, declared to them. And even in that, even though it's ultimately going to be fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus, Jesus, and they will come under the blood of Christ by the, the ultimate means of their salvation, and their comprehension of the workings of God, what they knew is what God had declared unto them. And by faith, they believed the promises of God. They may not have had a clear, total understanding of all that Jesus would accomplish in his death, burial, and resurrection, but they knew, Abraham knew, God said, follow me and I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to make of you a great nation, a great people. I am going to make your descendants more numerous than the sand of the seashore and the stars of the sky. I'm going to give you a land. And guess what? Through you, I'm going to bring a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. All the nations of the earth are going to experience this blessing. He knew that God promised that. And he knew that God said, go. And so he set out by faith. He set out by faith to follow.
follow the revelation that God had given, the promise of God that God had made to him. And ultimately, that is the seed that gives way to, eventually, the coming of the Messiah and the total fulfillment of this blessing that comes through Abraham. Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, dying upon a cross for the sins of the world. He didn't know the whole picture and plan in that moment, but he knew what God had said, and he responded in faith to it. And the Scriptures tell us he was justified by that faith. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. You turn there. I would encourage you to turn there. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's in Genesis 15 and verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord, and it was accounted to him that there was an imputation of righteousness that he did not deserve that could cover his sins by the merciful, gracious act of God. I don't have time to get into it, but Romans 3 actually talks about when Jesus died upon the cross. He didn't only die for the sins of of the believers in the future. He did die for our sins, the believers who would come in the future. But he died upon that cross for, for the sins of the believers in the past as well. That all of that was in a way swept under the rug. And when Jesus dies, hangs upon that cross, God takes all the dirt from under the rug, the wrath of God rightly due to sinners, and he poured it out upon Jesus. So Jesus is the means of Abraham's justification. But how did Abraham receive this imputation, this giving of righteousness that's accounted to his account? He received it by faith. The just shall live by faith. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. If we're able to be saved, if they were able to be saved then by their works... That would mean that God owed them because of who they were and what they were doing, and God owes no man nothing. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Now Paul moves from Abraham to David, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness. That that word imputes means that he bestows it upon us. He gives us something that's alien, an alien righteousness, meaning a a foreign righteousness, something that's not in and of us that we have created and produced of our own works. It's the righteousness of Christ that was covering them then, and it's the righteousness of Christ that covers us now. Just as David had this imputation of righteousness um, committed, bestowed upon him, apart from works, as he wrote, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. And so what did they know? David might have had a little bit fuller picture, but I still doubt even that David understood the full extent of what God would do through the suffering servant of the Lord, through Jesus, the Son of God incarnate coming to die upon a cross for our sins, to be that atoning sacrifice. But what David did know was what God had revealed, and David, by faith, he repented and he believed. He trusted the promises of God, the revelation that God had given to them. And by that, he was justified through his faith, not through his works. 
man at any time on the face of planet Earth has ever been justified by his works, by his keeping of the law. All who ever have been made right before God and been been made just before God have been justified by the grace of God through faith in the promises of God. Now for us on this side of the cross, we have a fuller revelation of the promises of God. We see it now so fully unfolded in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ that what is His revelation to us? Repent and believe the Gospel. Repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and His Savior. We must know the Gospel because that is His revelation that He has given. It's past. We're looking back to it. The Gospel is necessary for salvation to understand, to hear, to receive the promises of God and believe upon them, and by faith one is justified. So that leads us to a second question. Were works a part of it? What role do works play in the salvation of the Old Testament saint? Because they had to make those sacrifices, didn't they? They had to keep those festivals, didn't they? They had to follow the covenant, the commands of God, didn't they? They were supposed to do that. We sometimes draw too big of a dichotomy of a separation between the salvation of a New Testament saint and the salvation of an Old Testament saint and the role of works in the, the, the salvation of a New Testament saint compared to the role of works in an Old Testament saint. I see a much more continuity between the two, a parallel even between the two. That if we think of what works, what role they play in our lives in the here and now, It very much parallels what role works played in the salvation of a saint in the Old Testament. Uh, Were they saved by their works? Are we saved by our works? We just clarified, no, we're saved by grace through faith. But can you have genuine saving faith apart from works? No. Somebody's read the book of James before. Works are not the root of our salvation, but they are the fruit of it. Even in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, where Paul is speaking of being saved as a gift of God that we receive by faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Verse 10, we often leave it off, but it says we're saved. He saves us unto good works, which He prepared prepared beforehand that we should walk therein. That, That we are saved unto God. And by grace through faith, we're given salvation. Our heart is regenerated. We are made a new creation. And then works necessarily follow that. But if they don't follow that, there is great cause to question, is that faith really, truly saving genuine faith? Or is it the seed that fell on the rocky soil or the seed that you know, sprang up like like it speaks of in that parable, but then quickly got choked out and there was no real life to it. Is it a false faith that is not saving? As James makes clear, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, he also goes back to Abraham. And he says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Meaning that sort of faith, a faith that is void of any work. He says, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, that sort of faith that does not produce good works, if it does not have works, he says it's dead. It's in word only. 
It's not a genuine saving faith because a genuine repentance and faith in the Lord will bring about fruit, will bring about the change of life. So that if you continue in the sins that you've always committed, even after you say these words of faith in the Lord and you profess this faith in God, but you're no different and there's no life change, that, that, that lack of life change gives great evidence that there has been no true heart change. If your heart's really changed, the life will follow. Now, it's not the life being changed that's the means of your salvation. It's the heart change that happened by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what saves us. But if that really happens, the life's going to be a little different that's lived afterwards. There will be works that, that justify the faith as genuine, not justify you before a holy God. They justify the genuineness of the faith. A change of life demonstrates a change of heart. A change of heart without a change of life is self-deceit. A change of life without a change of heart is self-righteousness, which will not justify you before God. Verse 18 of chapter 2 of the book of James. But someone will say, you have your faith and I have my works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, a foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father, listen to this, justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Now James is taking the, seeing the fruit being the justification of the faith. It, it validated he had a true Belief upon the Lord because he didn't just say it and then disobey the Lord. He said what he said in faith, believed the promise of God by faith, and then carried through in action the faith that he had. Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works, faith was made complete. It was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. So many people get so conflicted and confused by James's account of justification by works. If you read it incorrectly here in Paul's justification by faith, they're saying the same thing. James is just arguing and emphasizing the necessity of works that follow that validate the genuineness of a faith, of a true faith, of a saving faith. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? She didn't just say, I believe that the God of Israel is the one true living God, and now I'm going to, to um, turn these um, spies over to, to the soldiers here. No, she followed through by faith. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And so James makes clear, speaking of Old Testament saints, Realize that he's not drawing a, a dichotomy, a separation between, well, in the New Testament we're saved by grace through faith, but in the Old Testament they were saved by works. No, 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 no. They were saved by grace through faith, and we are saved by grace through faith. And just as our works are a genuine evidence, the fruit of our salvation, so it was then. If a person said, as Abraham would say, I believe the Lord, and then they went and did the opposite of what God had commanded, obviously what they said and professed was not a genuine saving faith. It was a dead faith, James would say. Don't draw a distinction between the two. Realize it's always been by grace through faith. And ultimately, for them in Christ, and definitely as we look back to Christ, for us, by 
the atoning work of Calvary. And so we go back to chapter 56 and verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come. And we know God is not telling His people here, you will be saved by your works. And what He is telling His people is, your works are the, going back to even that message of John from a couple of weeks ago on Sunday, are the evidence of your repentance, of your genuine faith, of your genuine turning to the Lord, that, that you can't truly turn to the Lord and continue living in idolatry and immorality. He says, keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is going to come. He's going to accomplish the redemption of God's people. All of these promises will be uh, fulfilled in the, the working of this Messiah, of this Christ. And my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the Son of Man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. And so they're under the Old Covenant. They're under the Ten Commandments. Christ has not come and fulfilled those yet. And so they're not filtering their application of those in their life as we do as a New Testament believer through the lens of Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected. The Sabbath was a binding command upon them. Not in the way that it is for us now. Hebrews chapter 4, Christ is my Sabbath rest. And it points to Jesus, the resting from our works. He is my Sabbath rest as I filter it through. For them, they kept and honored the Sabbath by the command of God. Not justifying themselves by the keeping of the Sabbath, but giving evidence of their genuine faith in God by their keeping of His Sabbath and keeping their hands from doing evil, following the commands of the Lord in their life. Works did not save them, but works gave a great evidence of the genuineness of their faith, which was the means of their salvation, the way in which they were justified. Third question, why did God choose Israel? To understand what is His whole point in working through this man named Abraham and all the descendants of Abraham. Genesis 12 is when God calls Abraham. Again, all the descendants of Abraham come, or all of Israel comes through the descendants of Abraham. Um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the sons of Jacob become the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and so all this, this nation of Israel all comes back to this covenant made originally with Abraham. In this covenant, God promises, I'm, I'm calling you for an ultimate purpose of what? To bring a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. That even in God's choosing of this one individual, He had in mind, even in that moment, the rest of the nations. That His plan never is Abraham and the descendants of Abraham only. His plan is Abraham and the descendants of Abraham, that through the descendants of Abraham, a, a, a light will come to the whole world. A witness will come to all the nations, a blessing that all the nations of the earth may know that the God of Israel, and only the God of Israel, is the one true living God. You realize when Jesus was speaking and teaching the Sermon on the Mount, we rightly apply that to the church and to the New Testament believer, but the crowd to whom he was speaking was who? It was Israelites under the Old Covenant. He had not been crucified, buried, and raised again yet. He's looking to the people of God, the ethnic even Israelites, and saying, you are a city on a hill that cannot be hid. You are the salt of the earth. You are a light that is to be shown that all may see. 
Israel was supposed to be, and they were called to be, a unique people. A people that God establishes this special relationship with, this covenant with, that that in the uniqueness of the blessing poured out upon them, all the other nations of the earth would look and say, you know what, the Babylonians have their gods, and the Egyptians have their gods, and the Syrians have their gods, but I am convinced there is no God like the God of Israel. He alone is the one true living God. He alone is worthy of my devotion and worthy of my worship. Israel was to be the Son of God. Israel was to be the servant of the Lord. Israel was to be a light unto the nations, a witness of the glory of God. They did not live up to that calling, did they? God is faithful in His covenant promises, though. And ultimately what we find, the Gospel of Matthew is showing us chapter by chapter, Jesus becomes the true Israel the greater son of David, the better Moses. He ultimately fulfills that which Israel failed to be as He fulfills for us, even in His perfect life, what we failed to be. Uh, that, That He is the fulfillment. That He is the true light. That He is the true city on a hill by which the glory of God is manifested rightly to the people, rightly to the nations, that all the nations may come to know God and rightly worship God. Israel was called to be that. You think of all the times that phrase is found in the Old Testament through all the miracles that God worked. Even like David standing before Goliath is one instance where when he says, I'm going to defeat you. Why? That all the earth may know that the God of Israel is the one true living God. Uh, Elijah uttered those words. Others uttered those words after great miracles that God uh, performed. Galatians chapter 3. It sort of ties all of this together. Galatians chapter 3, go ahead and turn there. Chapter 5, or chapter 3, verses 5 through 14. I'll read it for those of you who haven't turned there. Listen. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he not, or, or does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham, are really the true sons of Abraham. Verse 8, in the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. Now you understand? Don't draw such a, such a dichotomy between the Old Testament and the New Testament. <laughs> Paul's saying here, God preached the gospel that we're saved by to Abraham and through Abraham, saying in Abraham, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed by and through him. Verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many as are the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Those that were thinking they could be saved by the works of the law, they were foolish. They're cursed by the works of the law. But no one is justified by the law in the sight of God. Is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. 
For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit through faith. That outsiders, Gentiles like you and me, might come to be the people of God being grafted in just as they were saved by faith, we also now saved by faith, we looking back to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this leads us to verses 3 through 5 of Isaiah 56. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. I'm an outsider. I'm a Gentile. I'm a a foreigner. I was not given the covenant promises of God. I am not able to come and worship as a Hebrew in the temple of the Hebrews. I am separated utterly. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. Eunuch. Literally, the name would mean a bed servant. They are a special category of servants. Most of you know what a eunuch is, but it is often um, a man who was castrated. Not always, but typically um, the term would imply it was a castrated man who was um, put as a servant in charge often of the king's wives in serving them and the king's concubines even serving them. And so a part of the temptation to make sure nothing would happen there. He was castrated, often usually unwillingly, as a servant to be put into servitude in that capacity. A eunuch was disgraced by that act often. A eunuch was shamed by that. A eunuch was looked down upon in culture and society as one who would never, as much as family lineage would mean something now, it meant even more then, who would never have children, who would never have offspring who would never have a, a lineage of, of, of that heritage, of that pride even in a family that, that is, is taken away from him. I'm a dry tree. Here I am. I'm unable even under the law to enter the temple, even as a Jew. Outcast, the ones beaten and worn by the world. To the eunuch who keeps my Sabbaths, God says, and chooses what pleases me and holds fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house. And within my walls there's a place for them and a name that will be given to them better, better than that of sons and daughters. And I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Then he goes back to the foreigner. Also the sons of the foreigner who joined themselves to the Lord to serve Him and to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast My covenant, even them I will bring to My holy mountain and make them joyful in My house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on My altar, for My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, not the Hebrews only, but all nations will be gathered in this house of prayer of the Lord, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel, says, yet I will gather to him others, Gentiles, foreigners, eunuchs, besides those who were gathered to him. We have a great promise of the Lord here that that God will bring the outsiders and the outcasts to be those that are the insiders and those who are received in his house. 
not only of the ethnic Jews, but of any and all nations, any and all who turn to the Lord in faith to believe the promises of God that He had given and then manifest the fruit, the works, the keeping of the Sabbath, the keeping of the covenant, the obedience that God commands. That's not the means of their salvation. That was the fruit of their salvation. It gave evidence to the genuineness of their repentance and faith, turning to the Lord. Whoever does that, there's a place in my house, God says. And there are those, even in the Old Covenant, who were outsiders, who were outcasts, that God brought in. Some even in the lineage of Christ, like Rahab, a harlot, like Ruth, a foreigner, a Moabite. I wonder if the city of Nineveh repented in a genuine repentance that led to their salvation. We don't know enough to know fully, but they responded to the promise of God, the revelation God gave them in repentance and faith. Is there a group of Ninevites that we'll see someday in heaven? Naaman, captain of a foreign army, healed miraculously by God and responds in faith to the Lord. We'll see him in heaven someday, likely, maybe. Talking about King Nebuchadnezzar, I don't know. I think it, I don't know if I'm going to see him honestly. I kind of think he just recognized God as one of the gods, but but maybe. Maybe someday, God knows, did he respond in faith? Was he justified by faith? God brought in outsiders then, and all of those were little pictures of the grand turning to the Lord that would come through the work of the suffering servant that is even prophesied here. That God would bring the foreigner, and God would bring the eunuch into his house and give them a name, give them a place. Two closing applications. We should rejoice that God has given us a place in His house. Now you are, in some degree, the foreigner and the eunuch that God is speaking about here. Now whether this ultimately will be fulfilled in a smaller way in a millennial kingdom that is to come, perhaps. But I think the grandest fulfillment of this passage comes in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That you and I, as foreigners, those who are not of the the promised seed of Abraham, those who have not received the, the prophets and the promises, the covenants of God, you, as an outsider, have been brought in. You've been grafted in. You are, you're the people of God. I am, I am a child of God. I've, I've been given a title better than, than the sons and daughters of anything this world can offer. I'm a child of the King. I'm a child of, of God. Rejoice in that. You were once the foreigner and you were once the eunuch even, starred and marred by this world and your sin, a disgrace, an outcast, and God has brought you in. Secondly, we should receive others in this house, just as God has received us. You know, the Scriptures tell us the church is, in a way, a temple of God. It is the temple of God. We are the house of the Lord. And in a way, this prophecy has been fulfilled in us and through us, that outsiders, foreigners, and eunuchs are coming into the house of the Lord. How often, unfortunately, can we who have been invited into this house and made a home in it, gotten used to it, gotten cleaned up a little bit by the grace of God, at least on the outside, 
Can we be a little judgmental and prejudiced over someone who doesn't look the same way, smell the same way, speak the same way? Who may be as a eunuch, an outsider, even one who's looked down at society when they when they come to believe the promises of God, when they come to turn and repent and believe upon Jesus as Lord and Savior, that we are called to receive them just as we were received in this house. God takes the foreigner and He takes the eunuch who have no right, who have no place, and He makes a place for them. Only if they turn. Only if they they manifest the fruit worthy of repentance and the life evident of that life change. There's a place at the table. We must remember that and and guard our hearts from being the older brother of the prodigal son and begrudging God for His gracious, merciful forgiveness. Rejoice that God has given you a place in His house. Receive others even rejoice in their reception in this house just as God has received you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to You. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your salvation that's by grace through faith. Lord, if it were by works, if it ever were of works, no one would ever be saved. We cannot undo the wrong that we are. We need a Savior. We need redemption. We need righteousness that's other than us outside of us, and You have given that through Christ. Lord, in His death, His burial, His resurrection, and His perfect life life that He lived in our place, He can give to any who come to Him righteousness that justifies. Lord, so many of us have turned to Jesus. We've repented and believed upon Him as Lord and Savior. Thank You for that salvation. May we all be reminded and just step back in awe for a moment to realize You have provided a place in Your house us of your grace and of your mercy. Don't let us get over that. Lord, may that even be the motivation for us to desire others to hear and to know and to come to saving faith in you. And may that be the motivation for us to receive them gladly, joyfully, no matter how outcast they are, no matter how scarred and marred by this world they are. Lord, let this church be a place that receives all who receive you. Lord, we pray you will work in our hearts, sanctify us tonight through your word, and in days to come we ask it in Jesus' precious name.